Let's pray, and then we'll dive into the scripture. Father, thank you for the word of God that it illuminates our hearts and our minds. It causes transformation within us. And so as we read and share it together, would you, would you show us yourself? Would you speak your heart through the words that I say here? Lord, would you just speak straight into us and pour yourself in so that we can be the people you've called us to be. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Philippians chapter 4, verse 2 is where we'll start, but just by way of introduction, you know we've been in a series called Philippians, the book of Philippians, and we're reading through this really wonderful, affectionate letter from the Apostle Paul to some believers in the city of Philippi, and uh, we've been there for several weeks, and we're calling this series um, The Secret to Being Content. Secret to Being Content, and so there's um, each week we kind of learn another secret of contentment. We learn another secret of how God is, has used this letter, this part of the scripture to teach us about our culture and who we are. We're bombarded every day by messages that say you should be discontent. Discontent with your marriage. Discontent with your uh, laundry detergent. Discontent with the last movie you saw. I mean, it is everywhere. And so it's so important for us as believers to understand God has called us to a life of contentment, a life of satisfaction in him and him alone. And there are clues to how we do that throughout this book. And so we're looking through the book and, and, and kind of mining for clues. And so today I'm just going to read a little small portion of scripture, and we're just going to take a few minutes and highlight some very meaningful truths that we need to remember. You know, sometimes... It is not new and interesting things that we need to talk about. It is the old and established historical truths that we forget about. So we're going to do that today, all right? But we're going to do it from an interesting little passage, all right? So Philippians 4, verse 2, here's what it says. He says, I plead with Iodia and I plead with Cintiq to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. I find it fascinating as the apostle paul is writing this very personal letter he's dealing with real theological ideas we've just dealt with pressing on toward the goal forgetting what is behind only looking towards what is ahead understanding that our citizenship is in heaven and then he turns from this theological argument and he starts pleading that's what he says in this in this passage he says i plead with these two ladies iodia and Cintiq. i have no idea if that's how you pronounce it but they're fun words to know and say. Eodia. Say it. Eodia. And Cintiq. I have no idea. But, it's, but it's, uh, it's these two ladies. It's these two women in the church. Now, it's interesting to see that these women must have been uh, of a high enough profile to include in this letter. That means that they were known they were potentially leaders within this church. The disagreement would have probably, most likely, been known by the others in the church. 
And so there was even an ask for help by a loyal yoke fellow. <laughs> Another fun word to know and say. In the first service, I said, loyal yoke fellow. And it almost sounded the same. It's like this, this person, we don't know who it is. Bible scholars don't know who it is. They say that some, some say it could be Epaphroditus who was actually carrying the letter to the city of Philippi. Could have been a leader there in the church, but he's appealing to him. He say, he's saying, I want you to help this, these, this situation. I want you to help this conflict that's going on inside of this group of people and, and these two ladies in particular. He said, help me to do this. And I want you to see that this is important enough for the Apostle Paul to highlight it. He even, he even really, if you think about the, the entire book, he's highlighting this concept theologically as he goes through it. If you turn over one page, turn over one page to, to chapter 2. Turn over there and look at what he says at the beginning of chapter 2. This is, he says, if, any, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, he's saying if you have all these things, he says, then here's what I want you to do. And the answer, of course, is you do have all those things. You do have all of that. You have the Spirit. You have tenderness. You have compassion. You are united with Christ. Here's what he says. Then make my joy complete by being what? Being like-minded is what the NIV says. Being like-minded, having the same love, love for one another, being one in spirit and purpose. One in spirit and purpose. One chapel. One in spirit and purpose. The Apostle Paul highlights the fact that it is so important for us to be one in spirit and purpose. He actually highlights it throughout his letters. It's not just the book of Philippians. He's encouraging them to love one another deeply, to agree together. Now he's calling. He's, he's kind of outlined it theologically in chapter 2 because he goes straight from here to describing how Jesus laid down his life for us and how we ought to have that same attitude. But now he's going beyond theology and he's embracing this very well-known situation, this conflict, and he's saying, hey, these two ladies, I plead with you. And notice how he says it. Go back to chapter 4. He says, I plead with Yodia and I plead with Sintiq. He says it twice, kind of highlighting this even-handedness. He's not trying to say, look, you're right and you're wrong necessarily, although one of them may be. He, doesn't, he may not even know enough about it to know all that. But he says, tell them to agree in the Lord. And I love this little phrase, in the Lord. You should write it down. You should, you should circle it in your Bible. Circle it in your Bible. You take your pen, circle it. If your Bible is too nice to be written in, enshrine it in glass and get a new one. Because, because we need to get the scriptures into us. And sometimes you need to, you need to underline, you need to write, you write yourself little notes as the Holy Spirit speaks to you. Because that's what happens when we read the scripture. Holy Spirit will speak to you about things that I'm not even saying. And if you're ready with pen in hand and you're ready with notes, he's speaking. So be ready for that. So he, he says to these ladies, he said, I want you to agree with each other in the Lord. It's the same word actually from chapter 2. When he, when he talks about being like-minded, when he uses this phrase, it's the same original wording. And so as uh, he's, he's calling them to come into a unity that is so important for people in the body of Christ. But 
this thing in the Lord is such a unique little phrase because what it says is that he's not just talking about trying to get through some conflict on your own. He uses the term in the Lord nine times throughout this book. It's a unique little thing. If you go back and look, I'm going to just read a few of the, of the passages for you. Philippians 1.14, he says, And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. What he's saying, this is a very unique situation. Think about it. He's saying, my chains, being wrapped up in prison, has actually caused people to be courageous and aggressive. Now, that doesn't make sense, does it? Because you would think somebody going to jail and suffering for what you believe in would make you shrink back and make you fearful. But not in the Lord. In the Lord, it it twists it around. It changes it and causes people to be full of courage. He goes through and he says, uh, Philippians 2.19 He's talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. He's saying, I hope in the Lord's plans, in the Lord's timing, in the Lord's direction, as the Lord leads it, I'm gonna send him to you. That's my plan, but it is up to the Lord. Do you see it? Do you see it? Okay. I'll just keep going. Verse uh, Philippians 2, 24, he says, and I am confident in the Lord that my, I myself will come soon. Then he, 2, 29, he says, so then welcome him in the Lord with great joy. He says in 3, 1, he says, finally, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write these things to you as a safeguard. He's saying, I'm not talking about just rejoicing in yourself. I'm not talking about being happy. I'm talking about understanding what you have in the Lord and that changing everything about your perspective. That's a good little nugget, isn't it? He says it over and over again. What he's saying is, is he wants Iodia and Cintiq to agree in the Lord. He wants them to put down whatever is going on and agree in the Lord. That means with the Lord's help, with the Lord's direction, with the Spirit of God that works inside of us. What it means is you have to trust. If you're going to try to work out a conflict, work out a disagreement, You're going to have to have the Spirit of God help you, and you're going to have to trust that God will be involved. You're not just doing it by yourself. Now, all of you have an incredible opportunity over the next month, six weeks or so. You're about to go into the holiday season, right? You're going to be with family and friends, extended family, weird uncles, strange cousins. You're going to have opportunity for character development. You're going to have opportunity for dealing with conflict. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about reconciling. I want you to think about what reconciliation actually means, what it means for us to be called as people of reconciliation. The Apostle Paul thinks it's so important. He talks about it in several of his letters. The unity of the body of Christ, the unity of you and I, and how we work and live together is so important. Look at Ephesians. I'm just going to put these scriptures up on the screen for time's sake. But Ephesians 4.25, look what it says. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. You know what this means? This, he's, he's saying, number one, that we've got to share truthfully with one another. We can't shrink back from dealing with conflict. 
it is absolutely normal that God's people would have conflict. It is absolutely a natural thing. I, I love the phrase. I've heard it said, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there, there is more than one opinion. <laughs> There's a disagreement. And so it is, not, it is not unique to have a disagreement. What is unique is to work out that disagreement in the Lord and under his direction and deal with conflict in a way that is godly, that is loving, and that is truthful. That is the unique quality of the body of Christ. This is what the Apostle Paul is say, describing here in Ephesians chapter 4. He's saying, in your anger, do not sin. You know what that means? It means you can be angry. Oh, I'm so relieved. I'm so relieved. But he, what he's saying is, in your anger, guess what? You have, to, you have to stop short of sin. You cannot sin. You cannot, get, you, cannot, you cannot have bursts of anger and rage that violate people, that curse people, that, that actually uh, uses um, profanity and, and just loses control of yourself, and you just, you just can't stand the person so much that you just... It, it blows up on them. You can't do that as a person who belongs to Jesus Christ. God is, his, his desire is to work in every one of us. If you have an, an anger problem, his desire is to work in us and to help us to realize that we've surrendered all of our rights to him. Jesus Christ came and he's laid down his life for us and now we are surrendering our lives to him. And as we surrender, that means that we surrender everything, every opinion, every issue, every struggle, every circumstance, we lay that down. And so it, you can get angry about something, but you have to be ready and you have to be, pre be prepared to work out the conflict after the anger. He also says right here, he says, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Now, I really... I try to obey this scripture. I think we all should because it's a scripture about timing. Timing. If you're right taking notes, write down that word in your notes. Timing. We have to deal with conflict and deal with situations that arise, and we have to deal with it quickly. Quickly. Deal with it in the same day. Sometimes it's not possible. Deal with it the next day. It's not, a, it's not like a legalistic law that you've got to deal with it before the sun goes down. But I do think that it's talking about a priority. It's talking about making sure that we are committed to working things out quickly and not letting them sit. Once issues sit in your heart, they entrench. Once you get angry and you're like, I can't believe they did that. I can't believe she said that. Can you believe she said that? And then you're starting to talk to other people about it. Now it's getting down there deeper. You're dialoguing with other people. You're laying on your bed. You're thinking about it. You're getting madder and madder as you go to sleep. Then you're tensing up. All your muscles are getting tight. And then you wake up the next morning with a crick in your neck. That, now cr crazy as this sounds, that's what the scripture is trying to keep you from. I do this with my wife sometimes when we're having a disagreement which we rarely ever have. <laughs> but sometimes when we're fighting, we're having a little tiff, and I'll, I, at the very least, I mean, maybe I'm still all agitated about it, and I'm frustrated. Um, I haven't called her names or anything like that, but I'm, I'm frustrated, I'm irritated. It's not quite resolved, because sometimes it takes time to resolve conflict. But the very least thing that I will do is I will grab a hold of her hand as we're laying there in bed, we go to bed, and I grab her hand, and I'll say, 
sweetheart. No, I typically don't say that when I'm angry. I would say, Amy, I want you to know that I love you and I am committed to you. And no matter what we're facing, we will always work it out. And then I lean over and I give her a little kiss on the cheek. And then I turn over and go to bed. <laughs> Sometimes she gets so mad at me because I, I'm kind of a quick sleeper. <laughs> I, 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 like, I don't like to get up early, but I like to go to bed early too, so it's weird. Um, so so I, I, I can just go to sleep. I got something on my mind. I just, and she's laying there thinking about it. She can't stand that. Don't let the sun go down while you're angry. Men, take the lead in your homes. Obey this scripture. Do whatever it takes to make sure. You may not resolve the issue at hand. The issue may be larger. The conflict may be greater. You're going to have to walk through some steps. But you make a commitment, and you make sure you go to bed without being angry at your spouse. Women, respond when they do that. Look at what Jesus says. If we go to another scripture, John chapter 13, verse 34. A new command I give you, Jesus says. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. So by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You know what this means? This means that the unity and the love of the church, the way that we care for one another, the way that we process conflict and disagreement, if it is done in an attitude and an atmosphere of love, the world sees that and they say, that looks good to me. The problem with most of our reputation in, a, in the United States as the church is that we can't even get along with each other. Listen, if we will just figure this out, the unity of the body of Christ is so much more important than so many other things. The unity and the connectivity and the agreement that we have with one another on, on what's going on. And it, and it doesn't mean that we can't disagree. Every month I teach at square one. I teach about the absolutes. I teach about the interpretations. And I teach about deductions of scripture. And I talk about how important it is for us to agree on the absolutes. And then we can disagree on some of the interpretations of the scripture. We're going to have different ways that we see the scripture or different things that we think it says, and that's okay. But we must agree in the Lord to love each other and to share our lives with each other. It is something that if we protect it, it is our witness. It is our message to the world. That's what John 13 says. Look at what Matthew chapter 5 says. It's Matthew 5, 23. It says this, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Now this is an interesting passage. Because what this says is that there is a hierarchy of priorities. When you're offering a gift, and what this would be in reference to, it would be in reference to the sacrificial gift that you would have brought to the temple. It says when you bring that gift and you give that sacrificial gift, if you realize while you're there praying, somebody has something against you, if there's an offense, then you need to go, you leave your gift at the altar and you go fix that offense and then come back and give 
your gift. Now, what is this suggesting to us? I think what Jesus is suggesting to us is that there is a priority level to relationships. There's a, there's a higher value to God on relationships and unity and agreeing than there is on the ritual of bringing your sacrifice. It doesn't matter how strongly you want to worship and enjoy the worship service. In fact, nothing pains me more than people that are exuberant and expressive in worship and they just love worshiping Jesus, but their relationships are all screwed up. What this says to us is we have to prioritize the relationships we have even above our own experience and ritual of worshiping him. If you, if, you look at, if you look at what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Corinthians, he says this in the first book of Corinthians, and he talks about how people were offended because some Christians were eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. And they were all worried about it. And the Apostle Paul's message to the Corinthian church was, hey, this is no big deal. I mean, those little G gods that are those idols, they don't, they don't have it. They, it doesn't bother me a bit. It's good meat. I like it. That's partially paraphrased. And what he said, what he said to those believers is he says, but if it causes your brother to stumble, when you're with somebody who they're offended, when that, when you eat meat offered to idols, then don't eat meat offered to idols. Just don't eat it. Because the priority of your relationship with your brothers and sisters is more valuable than your freedom to eat whatever you want. Are you tracking with me? So, what the Apostle Paul is encouraging Iodia and Sintiq to do is to put this relationship, to prioritize this relationship above even their own disagreement. And it is something that we have to commit to. Now, the bedrock of this idea comes in Matthew 18. So let's turn over there. Turn over to Matthew 18. And we're going to read this little passage. And, and we'll, we'll finish with this today. Matthew 18, verse 15. This is Jesus and his declaration of how to deal with conflict or how to deal with sin or how to deal with offense. All right? So what we've got here is we have a whole context. If you looked, we're not going to take time to do it, but if you looked at chapter 18 and you see how he starts with the disciples and they ask him a question, Verse 1, he says, who is, Jesus was asked, who is the greatest king in the kingdom of heaven? This is, this is the disciples. They just were, it was so sad. They, they were with Jesus. He, they had him on, he had them on such a fast track. They couldn't quite catch up, and they're always worried about who's getting the credit. They were always worried about who was right. They were always worried about who had the upper hand. Do you see the problem? When you're dealing with conflict, you can't be consumed in that. What does Jesus respond to them with? He responds to the question, who is the greatest, with, you don't get it, guys. He comes and stands a child in front of them and says, the kingdom is like this little child. And unless you change and become like this little child, it is awesome to watch my kids go from emotion to emotion. I mean, when they get hurt, have you ever seen it? When your little, little kid gets hurt and they hurt their thumb or something, they're like, ah! and they're looking for blood and then if they see blood it gets worse 
And then if you're it's like, it's okay, it's okay. And then you hug them and then you show them that there's no blood. It's just a little scratch. Look, it's okay. It's all right. And you hug them and you comfort them. And then it's like, ah, ah, ah. And then you're like, are you ready to go play? And then they're, they're playing with a truck. It's like, boom, instantaneous. It is so weird. That has to do with the innocence of their heart and the lack of being even able or aware that they can hold grudges. There's a willingness to just switch from whatever's going on now to whatever's going on next. I want you to see that that's kind of the context Jesus is giving for this next, these next passages. He, he then talks about how if you are a person that causes a little one to stumble. Here's what he says. If you cause a younger person or a little one, a, a one who's Im- more immature than you, to stumble, if you cause them to sin, then it's better for you that a millstone, a giant millstone that would crush wheat and, and would, would, would be used in, in that harvest, it'd be better for the millstone to be hung around your neck and to put you in the sea. The judgment's going to be that severe and that bad. The context here is protecting little ones. Our church has to be committed to protecting young believers and little children. Every child that's back here in one of our, one of our rooms, we've, we, we have to do everything we can to protect them. We have to be the ones who will make sure that sin is not able to violate them. This thing that I've been watching on TV unfold with Penn State, it is so sad to watch this. It is an incredible thing that, that is the, the, the commentating on, on this dynamic, uh, the outrage that people have when a young person is violated. And, and, and I, don't, I know that all the allegations haven't been proven, but, but the, when I watch it, and it's been on just nonstop, it, it makes me sick. It makes me troubled. We should have this, this, this protection. We should be willing to protect those who are little ones, as Jesus describes it. And as we do, we protect what God is doing among us. We protect what God is doing among us. I want you to see that this is the context for getting to this passage. And then he says, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, then take one or two brothers, others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Two or three witnesses. That was an Old Testament idea brought into the New Testament in Jesus' words, talking about the validity of a testimony. Only two or three people. Can't have just one. Got to have two or three dealing with this issue or dealing with the sin. He says, if he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Wow, now let's break this little section down because this is an important thing. The first thing that he says is, he says, if your brother sins against you, then go and show him your fault just between the two of you. Right there is where most people mess it up. It's the first step. It's not that hard. It's just you and him. You and her. 
No, instead we want to go over, oh, you go to your connect group. I want you to pray about this. This person's really been messing up. And I, I just, I have to go confront them. And I need you to know about it and pray about it with me. No, you, now you've, you don't even know, you don't even know how, the, how it's going to turn out. You don't even know, you're not even sure if it's true at this point. You may think that they've sinned, and you need to go between you and them and make sure that you really know what the facts are. When you go just one at a time, one on one, then you protect, you protect the body of Christ. You protect their dignity. You protect them from other people's judgment. And listen to this. Not only do you protect that person, but you protect all these people that you wanted to tell from judging that other person. Do you see the problem? You unknowingly, you've now made that person look bad in front of all these other people, and you haven't even done the first step that Jesus tells you to do to resolve conflict or to deal with sin. That is what we have to be committed to, one-on-one. -on -one. And we do that, and what, the verse we already read, we got to go quickly. It needs to be done with, with no time to waste. Listen, it's much easier to do it at first then when it gets all nasty down in there and it's cons you're, you're kind of worried about how the person's going to react. Listen, most of us don't go because we're afraid of what will happen. That person will somehow re respond badly. We're afraid. What are we afraid of? Are we afraid that they will hate us? Well, then... The, the problem there is we need to have enough courage to believe in God's involvement that even if they do end up resisting us or rejecting us, we're strong enough in the Lord to be able to take it, to stand for what's right. So, so we, we got to go to them and have the courage to go. And so many of us, this is the thinking, this is the pervasive thinking in our society is, what right do I have to go speak into their life? This is this, is, this, is this uh, individual morality that we have all across the United States. I understand my own morality, but I would never presume to judge another person's morality. There's no community mor morality that they're embracing. And so we start thinking like that. The community of the body of believers, the community of the scriptures, the community of the people that are committed to what God said we should be. We start thinking like the world and we say, well, I don't have any right to speak into their lives. It's wrong. It's wrong thinking. Now, do I believe that there's, it's, it's much easier to speak into somebody's life if you have a relationship with them? Absolutely. Absolutely, but you may have to build that relationship as you're helping them discover that they're, that they're sinning. But listen, here's the thing. We're not talking about unbelievers. We're not talking about unchurched people here. We're talking about church members. So you're already in one sphere of the community and relationship. We're not talking about trying to convince people to help them see their sin because they've not come to Christ. This is if your brother sins, your brother Inside the group of people. Here, okay, so you got the first point? Do you have the first point? Because it's the biggest point. <laughs> it's the thing that everything else hinges off of. If you don't do this first, it really gets messed up. Then what happens is if you don't deal with it, well, here's the cool thing. When you deal with something with just one-on-one -on -one with another person, you know what happens? Many times if you settle it, oh, the relationship is better than it was before. 
because it bonds you. They feel like you have come to them in integrity and privacy and honored them. Now, at first they might not. And it's certainly if you come to them and you start saying, you're such an idiot. I don't know what's wrong with you. Can't you don't you know how to do this? You're totally into sin. That is not going to get you a great feedback. You have to be willing to come with humility and with love. And you have to say, here's what I see. Here's what I'm seeing. And I want to tell it to you. And I want to speak the truth in love. I want you to write this passage down. Ephesians 4.15. Ephesians 4.15. Write it down. Speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow into him who is the head, Christ Jesus. You know what that means? We have to create an environment around here where truth can be spoken in love, where people know that they're loved so they don't react out of anger when they're faced with the truth. Speaking the truth in love, we will all grow. That means we get to grow, we get to be mature, we get to grow together if we will shoot straight, tell the truth in an atmosphere of love. I'm not talking about being mean to people and then saying you love them. That is not acceptable. I'm talking about owning your own feelings. You know what that means? That means I feel like this is what happens when you say this. It's not you're making me feel this way. Look, no one can make you feel any way. You own your own person. You own your own feelings and you go and you go in a spirit of humility, open-handed, open-hearted. Let's finish it up. The second step is what? Get, get, get a friend to come. Get a, a, no, one or two people to come with you. Now you've got two or three. And what kind of friend would you pick to come and deal with this? You would pick the person that you've already talked bad about this person over and over again and told them how terrible they are so that when they go with you, they can really give it to them and show them how right you are. Actually, that's not it. You choose a person who would love this person as much as you do and who you can create some objectivity for yourself. And so that there can be a real um, give and take and a discussion amongst brothers or sisters. You go with a friend, a person who is encouraging, a person who is helpful. No gossip. I'm not talking about gossiping here. We're saying you've already done the first step. Now you take the second step. Now you include some other people in the process. We just had this happen in our church, and we did it just exactly like, and it, and it turned out the person hasn't responded. But we did the steps, and it was so cool to see because I know it's going to turn at some point. Listen, I am not afraid to do the, the third and fourth step. The third step is go to the church. Once you take a, two or three people, and then the, the, they, they don't respond, then it's okay to bring it to somebody in authority or to a group of people that's even a little larger than that. An authority figure in the church. That's probably what Jesus would have been looking at. He, he wouldn't, it wasn't a big, you know, mega church or anything that he was dealing with. He was seeing pockets of Christians that met in homes. He would have said, I want you to go to this authority figure within this group of people, and I want you to try to work it out with them. And then, if they don't respond, then what happens? You treat them like a pagan or a tax collector, which, which, which does mean outcast. Right? That does mean, hey, I'm, I, okay, this is not going to be fellowship with you because what you're saying is I'm a believer and I can do anything I want. 
See, the problem is if there's sin involved, if there's real sin involved, that means there's damage. And if there's evil being done, and remember, the, remember our context of Matthew 18, people are not being protected. We're not being like little children. If that's going on, then we must be willing to separate. Are you tracking with me? Now, here's the cool thing. How do you deal with a pagan and a tax collector? How did Jesus tell his disciples to deal with pagans and tax collectors? Scream at them, yell at them, call names. No. Pray for them and be a witness to them. Love them. He even said, when people mistreat you, when the Romans mistreat you, turn the other cheek. Wow. The Romans were definitely pagans. He said, give them your coat and your cloak. He said, walk two miles instead of one. When you think about how you treat a pagan and a tax collector, you've got you to remember this context. And so I am not afraid as the pastor to make these judgment calls because I believe in the sanctity and the sacredness of the unity of the body of Christ. Division is one of the things that kills churches best. It is one of the most effective tools that the enemy has to cause divisiveness, to cause disunity, to cause disagreement that never gets settled because we're never willing to enter into the, the, the structure or the, the recommendation, the, 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 the way that Jesus has prescribed for us to deal with conflict or to deal with sin. I'm not talking about being mean. I'm talking about being loving. I'm talking about embracing one another and taking the risk. And let, make no mistake, it's a risk because you don't know what's going to happen as you go through it. They may call you names, but then you may be able to demonstrate such Christian love that it wins them over. <laughs> Wouldn't that be cool? Let's make sure that we're protecting one another. Let's make sure that we are caring for one another. Let's make sure that we're dealing with conflict in a way that is protecting our witness, that's willing not to just let things sit, that's willing to share with one another in a, in a deeply loving way the truth of what God wants for our lives. You agree with me? Let's pray together. Father, I pray for every person right here that you would begin to just speak to their hearts. I want you just to, just to think, close your eyes, and I want you to let the Spirit speak to you. Let God speak to you about a, a conflict or a, or a relationship that's, that needs repairing. Or someone that you need to speak into their lives. Maybe you've been resistant to somebody else speaking into your life. And you're hearing the Holy Spirit say, open up. Surrender. You want to be protected by a community, but you've been resistant. This is your moment. I have in my heart to pray with two groups of people today. And well, the first group is, I want to pray with you if you feel like you have a situation, a relational situation that is so hard to deal with, you don't know exactly how to go about it. You've, you've, it's sitting there, it's conflict, it's wrongdoing. There's, some, there's something there you're going to have to address and you're gonna have to deal with. It may not be deep and dark sin, but you're still gonna have to deal with it. You may be sitting here and, and there is something deep and dark happening in, inside another person and you gotta have the courage to deal with it and you know it's coming and you, you need help. 
I want to pray for you today. I want to pray that God will give you the courage and that you'll have the wisdom and the grace and the love to do what the scriptures teach us to do, to resolve conflict and protect the body of Christ. Is there anybody here who has a relationship, big or small, that they know, I've got, I gotta deal with this and you want me to pray for you? Just lift up your hand. Yep, yep, all over the room. I want you to just keep it up, keep it up. Yep, just, yeah. God, this is me. I'm here. I got a, I've got a relationship that needs to be healed. I got a relationship that needs to be put back together. Would you help me? Help me. Give me grace. Now just keep your hand up while I pray over you. Father, thank you. You see these hands. You see these hearts. I pray that you would give us the courage and the grace, the great love of the Father that pours into our hearts, the humility that is required to go to someone and talk to them about a difficult subject. Give them your grace to do that. Give them your wisdom, understanding, insight. Help them to say it just right to elicit a response of repentance. To say it just right to allow the person to open up, to share, to deal with conflict in a healthy way. God, would you just invade each of these hearts, invade every mind and help them to have the mind of the Lord. Help them to do this in you, in the Lord, with your help with your strength, trusting you for the outcome. I pray this in Jesus' name. You can put your hands down. With your eyes closed and your heads bowed, I want to just ask one more question, and it's for anyone who you're here, you've come, you've recognized throughout the service and the message, I, I'm just I'm just far away from God. I, I feel lost. I, I believe in what you're saying, but I just don't feel like I even have the strength of God to live in me because I haven't been living with him. I haven't been following him. And you want to make a commitment to Christ today. I'm not going to embarrass you or call you forward. I just want to give you a chance to say, Pastor, pray for me. Pray with me. If you hear the voice of the Lord speaking to you, and this is your moment to say, I want to come home. I want your strength. I want your life, your plan for me, because mine's not working out. I want to give my life and surrender it to you. If that's you, I want you to just shoot your hand up in the air right now. Right now. Committing your life to him. Renewing your commitment to him. Saying, yes, God, I want to give myself to you. Yeah, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. It's so good. It's so important. This is the most important decision you will make in your life is to follow Jesus once and for all. Come on, let's all pray this prayer together. I want you to pray these words with me. Pray it out of faith. Don't pray it just because it's words. I want you to mean it deep in your heart. Everybody say it across this room. Everybody together say, Heavenly Father, forgive me for my failures, my sinfulness, for running away from you. I want to come home. I want you to make me a new person. I receive you into my heart. I receive your forgiveness. I make you Lord over my life. I choose to follow you today and always. I give you everything. Every relationship, every failure, every worry, every concern, I give it to you. And I choose you above all else. In Jesus' name.
Now, Father, I thank you for the, every person that prayed that prayer. Make them a new person today. Transform them by the Spirit of God. Allow them to follow you. Wrap your arms around them. Walk with them as they, it, as they go on this faith journey that they're on. Father, I pray for your protection. I pray for your healing. I pray for your great grace. In Jesus' name, amen.